This morning we're reading from 1 Corinthians 7. If you have the black uh, church bubbles, it's found on page 1776. Now for the matters you wrote about. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy." But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Giving God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in a situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to the faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person, as responsible to God, should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think it is good for a man to remain as he is. 
Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, and those who use the things of, this, uh, things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in, in its present form, is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honourably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she, she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment... She is happy if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Well, that's pretty easy, isn't it? <laughs> Sex, singleness, marriage, divorce, circumcision. It's kind of embarrassing to talk about all this stuff out front, isn't it? But, you know, Paul wrote this letter to a church where there was people like us, you know, all ages, stages, different complexities of life, and it gets worked out in the family. So let's just sort of buckle in and go for it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please help us uh, now, and thank you that your word gives clarity and speaks to the many different situations we find ourselves in. Um, undoubtedly, we'll still have questions after the end of this, so we pray help us to be kind to one another and be able to help talk to one another, and um, please please give us attention and help me to be really clear. Thank you that you're the Lord who applies the truth of Jesus being Lord to the complexities of our lives. And we ask, Lord, that you'd um, shine a light on helping us know which way to go, particularly in the area of what to do with our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so after that reading, you might feel either that what was read was very practical or very confusing, or some combination of the two. We've covered sex, singleness, marriage. Um, 
that describes some of the relational complexities that exist for church members. So here today, we have people who are happily married. We have, here, we have today people who are married but struggling in their marriage. We have people who've been mar- who are married to unbelievers with the tension and the difficulty that brings. Um, some people who've gone through the agony of divorce some who've remarried, some who are single and content, happy to be single, some people who would love to be married, but just hasn't happened for whatever reason, too young, haven't found the right person, or maybe single because of bereavement through death. Paul works through different scenarios here, but please understand what the overall goal is in this. I hope you saw it. Verse 35, have a look. There he says, I'm saying this for your own good, Not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Right now, everyone who knows Christ wants to live in undivided devotion to him who is Lord. That's what life is about. The question is how? Now, the Corinthians, of course, they'd been asking this question because, boy, they've got issues in their church. Not just the division, chapters 1 to 4, but rampant sexual immorality. You've got... Incest, chapter 5. In chapter 6, you've got church members visiting prostitutes. What on earth is going on there? And so some of them, in reaction to that, have said, because of the immorality in Corinth, which is now in the church, here's a solution, and they've written to Paul about it. Um, It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In other words, sex is the problem. Solution, bingo, simple, no sex, not even in marriage. That will free everyone just to focus only on God. (laughs) Right, now you see what's been done. They have separated what God has joined together. Yesterday, I did a wedding at Trinity City, and I said, those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. Well, the Corinthians have separated what God has joined together, not husband and wife, but spirit and body. All right, now this is behind the sin and their solution. You see, um, when we say, God is a God of grace, Jesus died for all my sins, I can maintain my relationship with God in my spirit and do what I like with my body, you see what we've done? Separated body and spirit. But what we separate, God joins together, and that's why in chapter 6, just before this, he says, guess what? Your bodies are members of Christ himself. Your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. You don't even own your body. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. So therefore, honor God with your body. End of chapter 6. So in other words, Paul will not let us separate body and spirit because God doesn't. He didn't with Jesus, did he? I mean, Jesus took on human flesh. Jesus died in the body. When he rose again, when death kind of separated body and spirit, no, 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 he rose bodily. Death might separate our body and spirit. That's an unnatural separation. But those in Christ will be brought together. God joins together what we naturally separate. So we're not to separate body and spirit. Um, That separation, which we do in our heads easily, leads to sexual immorality And also it leads to the pendulum reaction, this supposed solution to sin, which says, oh, bodies are evil, bodies are the problem, we worship God in our spirit, therefore, no sex. 
Uh -uh. Paul says, wrong way to think. The thread that runs through this chapter, the solution to the immorality is not no sex, but self-control. Or in the old version, chastity. You think, hang on, I used to, doesn't chastity mean no sex? No, actually, it means self-control. And that idea runs through the chapter. Verse five, come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verse nine, if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. Verse 37 speaks of the one who has control over his own will. The main problem Paul's been speaking to is sexual immorality. The solution is not no sex. The solution is self-control in whatever situation you're in. So the question is, how do you live with an undivided heart? Answer, you honour God with your body by exercising self-control. Okay, that's the thread that goes through. Now let's dive into the life scenarios that Paul uh, speaks of. The first is marriage. That takes up a fair bit of time. He says, since sexual immorality is, is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Now, for those of us who are married, who married, the principle is don't have a sexless marriage. If you're single and you're dreaming of being married, you're thinking, why on earth would you have a sexless marriage? All right. If you're married, you know there can be issues. You know, there's tiredness, there's sickness, there's stages of life, there's people working away, there's tension. But Paul is not anti-sex. The idea is God has made us with sexual desires. The Bible's very honest. It's, it celebrates this. This is good. This is to be enjoyed within marriage. Husbands and wives are reminded, therefore, that they have a duty to serve each other. Isn't that a funny word? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it's interesting that he doesn't use the word right, isn't it? You, have a, like you're, you each have a right to be served. But using that word puts the onus of on us, like rights can be demanded. But actually, no one has a right to sex. You have a right to air, to clean drinking water, to food, to safety. You die if you don't have those things. But you don't have a right to sex. No sex doesn't kill you. No one's ever died because they haven't ever had sex. Interesting, isn't it? That needs to be said because in our culture, it's pushed that this is a right, okay? No, no, no. In marriage, the word he uses is duty, not to say, mm, all right, but that word puts the onus on the, the other person that is you serving them. And that other person-centeredness in marriage, in sex, is, that's, that's meant, meant to characterise it. Um, in fact, when it says... Um, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields to his wife. This is revolutionary. In the ancient world, this is the first time such an equality is presented. Um, the husband doesn't have control over, oh, sorry, authority over his own body. The wife doesn't have authority over hers. It's said very equally. This is the first time in the ancient world this is put like this. This is Paul being unbelievably liberating for women. There you go. The point that he's making is that there should be sex in our marriage. Now, not having sex 
doesn't make the marriage more spiritual. <laughs> it's not like you can get closer to God through not having sex. In fact, the only concession he makes for this, and it's a concession, not a command, is that there might be no sex for a limited time, only for the purpose of prayer, and then only if you agree, and then only for a short time, because then come back together. Well, what about the case of widows or widowers when you're no longer married because your spouse has died? Most likely this was Paul's own situation. It would have been very rare for a Jewish teacher like him never to have been married. But he's single in, in all the time he, he appears in the Bible. His judgment is that it's good for someone to stay unmarried as I am. Reason being because then you can live your life with more wholly devoted to the Lord without distraction, without needing to be responsible for another person's needs or worries. But then he says, but if you can't control yourself, you should marry. Now again, this isn't said by, uh, as a way to shame anyone. He's recognizing God has made us relational beings with sexual desire. This isn't embarrassing to God. He, he's made us like that. And fulfilling sexual desire is a legitimate reason to get married. It's not the only reason why you might get married, but it's a legitimate reason. Because look at what he says. He says, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Now, if you've got a pen, I'm now going to give you permission to rub out the words with passion because that's not actually there in the original. It just says it's better to marry than to burn. The reason why the words with passion are there is because the NIV editors made an interpretive decision thinking that's what Paul meant. And he may, but he may not. He might have meant it's better to marry than burn in hell, right? Um, through not controlling yourself and this becoming then a salvation issue as we read back in chapter six, it, did, it does. Because if you give yourself to your desires at the expense of obeying the Lord, then giving rampant expression to your own what you want becomes more important to your identity than your relationship with the Lord. That affects your core being and your regard for it. This becomes a salvation issue. It's happened in my experience. I remember a, a very awkward moment when a man from a previous church who was not long widowed, he'd formed a relationship with a friend, friend of his now deceased wife, and that's fine, um, and they were thinking of getting married but what he didn't know that I knew was that they'd lived, moved in together and were probably sleeping together. And we had this conversation because he wanted to ask me to do the wedding. And he was older than me and it was very awkward. He took me out for a steak and um, I knew that first of all, I actually had to raise this whole issue awkward of is he sleeping with this woman well, needless to say, he didn't ask me to do the wedding. Uh, <laughs> um, now you might be thinking, Chris, that's none of your business, and so was he, actually. But you see, I'd read chapter 6, and I knew that this wasn't only dangerous if it wasn't repented of. I, I also knew that we all have a great capacity to be deceived in this matter, to think that we can maintain our relationship to the Lord in our spirit and disregard him in our bodies that we can separate body and spirit. But if you look at chapter six, verse nine, Paul says very clearly, do you not know that wrongdoers 
will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. He's very emphatic. And if we think, surely not, come on. Then we're being deceived, because that's why he says, do not be deceived. The only reason why you'd say those words, do not be deceived, is because if the people you're writing to had a great propensity to be deceived. But the thing about being deceived, of course, is you don't know you're being deceived, because you're deceived. So, you know, you've got this version of truth that is sort of operating in your head, but it's the wrong one. And so Paul's saying, no, 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 you've got to get rid of that and realize what's true. Chuck off that false view of reality which says you can separate spirit and body and realize there's a connection between the two. I think this is why Paul talks about sex so much. <laughs> you know, our views on sex and our own sexuality are so core to our thinking of our identity, aren't they? Very, very personal, very deep. And yet, you know, we could think that that actually trumps our, our core identity in Christ. You know, who are you at core? Well, he says you don't even own your body. It belongs to the Lord. Your relationship with God is more core than even your own body, even your own sexuality. So, if there's sin in this area of life, of course what you need to do is to come to Christ and come to the cross and confess it and realize that when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all your sin, and he freely forgives and makes clean those who have turned to him in repentance and faith. But you must repent. And it's likely that there are people here who need to, and there are people here for whom this will be an issue over time. And we need to be caring for one another and help one another through this. What about thoughts of separation or even divorce? For the Corinthians, this was kind of a logical extension of the no sex solution to immorality. You know, if the solution to immorality is no sex, wouldn't it therefore be better for married people to separate divorce and then it's completely off the table? No. <laughs> Jesus himself said, a wife must not separate from her husband. Okay, now you've raised the whole issue of divorce. What about when there's domestic violence? or neglect, or abuse. Verse 11. A man must not separate, a wife must not, must not separate from her husband, but if she does, isn't that interesting? The Bible's real, it's realistic. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband must not divorce his wife. Now, for those of us who are divorced or remarried, naturally now you'll begin thinking, have I done the right thing or the wrong thing? This is a big topic. It's bigger than we can cover here. Let me offer two quick comments. First of all, each situation is complex. It's painful. And what Paul quotes Jesus as saying here from Matthew 19, that is the overall principle. Marriage is meant to, for life. What's and sorry, when people, Jesus was speaking in Matthew 19, he was speaking against the um, very quick and easy divorce solutions which were out there in the first century. 
Um, a man only needed to say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and then his wife was divorced. Jesus says, no, it's meant for life. What God has joined together, let no one separate. So Jesus is speaking to that context. What's not spoken of here are grounds given within the Bible for divorce. Now, marriage is always meant for life, but, you know, there is sin, there's big sin, which comes into marriage sometimes, and um, divorce was only ever given in the Bible as a, never, never as a, as a, a convenient way out, but only ever to protect the rights of the vulnerable, usually the woman. And it was only ever given to pronounce a kind of legal reality on what was already true, that the marriage had already ended. So in other words, divorce didn't end the marriage. Divorce gave legal clarification to the relational reality, which then allowed this, normally a woman, to be free to remarry because she needed to, to be provided for. That's why it's in the Bible. But marriage is always meant to be for life, however the Bible's realistic. Secondly, Paul is not so much speaking to the, those who've been divorced and remarried here and giving instruction to them. He's speaking to those who are married now. And his word is Jesus' word, which says, if you're married, don't separate. <laughs> or if you do separate, don't divorce. Okay, I'm happy to talk through any of that uh, with anyone for whom this is an issue. What about the case of marriage between two unbelievers where one suddenly becomes a Christian, all right? Now, Jesus himself didn't address that scenario, so Paul does now in verse 12. The principle is, if the unbelieving husband or wife is prepared to stay with the believer, then the believer shouldn't divorce them. Why? Because verse 14 the unbelieving husband or wife has been sanctified through the believing wife or husband. And we think, what on earth does that mean? Is this like salvation by marriage? I thought you, you, know, you became saved when you turned to Christ and you put your trust in him as Lord. No, no, no. It's not salvation by marriage, though that's the goal. That's why, verse 16, it's worth staying together. I think what's going on in his thinking, the background to it is in chapter 6 where we read that our because our bodies are members of Christ himself, there therefore would be no way if you're a Christian that you would go and see a prostitute because that would be like to link Christ with a prostitute and that's just like abhorrent to your thinking. Okay, apply that same logic now to marriage. Okay, a, a, Christian situ a situation where a Christian is married to a non-Christian, all right? Does that mean when they come together and have sex, Christ is being defiled by being united with the unbeliever? <laughs> okay, so that's the problem. Paul says, no, in this case, it's not Christ being defiled through the body of an unbeliever at sex. It's the unbeliever who's being sanctified um, by Christ in the believer. This is a bit weird. Let me give a non-sex illustration. Remember when Jesus healed the leper? Okay. And normally you wouldn't touch a leper because you'd get unclean. But Christ touched the leper. And it wasn't he who became unclean. His cleanliness went the other way. Okay? And the leper was cleansed and saved. It's that idea of a Christian not being able to become polluted through having sex with an un unbeliever if they're the husband or wife. Okay? So the 
in terms of cleanliness, they're not defiled, right? Okay. But then he says, but if the unbeliever leaves, what should you do then? You're a Christian, your non-Christian wife or husband leaves because you're a Christian. Paul says, let them go. The Christian is not bound in such circumstances, meaning they are not bound in marriage, meaning they are free to divorce and then remarry. So here is another legitimate grounds in the Bible for divorce in that situation. Okay. Then in verses 17 to 24, Paul moves on from scenarios of marriage. We've left marriage, okay. (laughs) Now he's speaking about different situations involving our bodies. Believers who are circumcised becoming uncircumcised or the case of a slave who's a believer. You know, slaves involve their bodies in everything they do. What should they do? First he says, circumcision is nothing. It doesn't make a Christian man more or less spiritual either way. Don't change your body, therefore. Keeping God's commands in your body is the thing that counts. He's very emphatic. Second, if you're a slave, now we don't have slavery here. Some of you feel like you're a slave. <laughs> um, parents, kids, workers. All right, you're not. Not like slavery in the, old, in the New Testament times where you were owned. You had no rights, no rights at all. Your master could kill you if they wanted to. It would be perfectly legal. All right, you were owned. What should you do if you're a Christian and you're in that situation? He says, don't get hung up about it. I mean, gain your freedom if you can because Christ died to set you free, but don't get hung up about it because realize a couple of things. First of all, when you became a Christian, you became free. Jesus set you free even though you're a slave. You're free from sin, free from death, free from the law, free from guilt, free from eternal punishment. You are really free in a way in which your master probably isn't. And another point, when people become a Christ, Christians, they become slaves. They become slaves to Christ. So he said, the fact that you're in a slavery situation, don't get hung up about it. Gain your freedom if you can, but don't think that you necessarily need to run away or change your situation. He's saying God has called us to himself with our bodies, and we live in different relational situations. So Verse 17, verse 20, verse 24, three times Paul says, each one of you should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to you just as God has called you. Okay, so if you're not to change a situation, does that mean if you're single when you become a Christian, should you never get married? Well, he's saying not necessarily, but think about it. He said you're free to get married. But think seriously about not getting married because, here's the reason, insofar as your goal is undivided devotion to the Lord, there are distinct pluses in being single. And we need to say this. He says, verse 25, because of the present crisis, I think it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Don't seek to be released. But are you free from such a commitment? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you haven't sinned, and if a virgin marries, she hasn't sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. He's saying, obviously, there's freedom. And then you think, oh, that's too hard. You know, in decision-making, particularly about these big issues, sometimes we just want the Lord to tell us exactly what to do in our situation with our lives. He says, guess what? There's freedom. You know, my advice is, 
not get married, but understand you're free to do what you want. Whatever you decide obviously will have consequences, but neither decision is sinful. Does Paul's advice apply to us today? Because he was writing, because of the present crisis. We think, what's the present crisis, right? The present crisis, best guess, is a famine that's going across the Roman world. And you could understand how if you were single but then got married when a famine was on and then started having kids, how this could produce massive worry and massive concern for you. And Paul's saying, I I think it better just because of the present crisis, not to put yourself under that pressure. So does that then mean that because we're not in famine times, it doesn't really apply to us? Well, maybe, except for verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. Or verse 31, this world in its present form is passing away. Hang on, but we're not in famine and it's been 2,000 years. He's talking about the return of Christ. What did Jesus teach on this? Do you remember? He said, when you hear of wars, rumours of wars, famines, earthquakes, do not be alarmed. He says, these are the birth pains, but the end is still to come. Now, I have never given birth to a baby, but I have been present, and I know I'm a dumb male. But insofar as childbirth is concerned, and I hear the words birth pains, I can deduce two things. One is, they speak about birth, and the other one is their painful. (laughs) They speak about birth. When your wife goes through contractions, you know that a birth is coming. When the world goes through famines, earthquakes, wars, etc., you know that Christ will return. And they're painful. Intense pain, relief. Intense pain, relief. And then the time between them gets less and less and less coming up. Does Paul, the fact that Paul's been speaking about a famine mean that we can discount what he's saying about the return of Christ and therefore the need to think through staying single? Well, yes, there was a birth pain then, but there are birth pains now and they're intense and the time between them is getting less and less. You say, but it's been 2,000 years. Ah, yes, but we're actually 2,000 years closer to that coming now. So no... We can't discount what Paul says. Yes, it still does apply to us very, very much. If you're single, you should think about remaining being single. Okay. From now on, in fact, he says in verse 29, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it wasn't theirs to keep. You see how Jesus coming relativizes what we hang on to in this life? Those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. This world in the present form is passing away. It's not going to last. Don't get too hung up about things. Which means, a word to the parents and grandparents, we need to rethink the language of how we speak about our single kids and grandkids. You know, saying things like to them, oh, have you met that special boy or that special girl? that can actually be really unhelpful because it can put massive pressure on them, make them think that the only thing that is going to complete them as a person is getting married. Not true. Not true. A viable option for our children might be that they remain single. 
that's upheld in the Bible. It's not discouraged, it's not discounted, it's encouraged and it's endorsed. We need to rethink how we idolise marriage. Some years back, um, I was working, uh, sorry, at a church I was working at, we had a large young adults group and they were, there are a lot of people who were interested in serving the Lord overseas on Christian missions. So we ran a Christian missions expo and we got different reps from different mission organisations to turn up to our church on a Saturday afternoon so that you know, people could come and ask questions and find out information and we could promote interest. And um, there were a number of Christian, young Christian women who were quite keen on serving the Lord overseas and I was, I was the assistant minister, I was feeling quite protective of them so in the panel discussion, these people who'd never met, um, I put up my hand and said, look, uh, if you're a young Christian woman, would it, wouldn't it be better to wait till you were married before you went overseas so that, you know, you could be better cared for, protected? And then I remember what happened. That all the people there on the panel just looked at each other and laughed. And they said, what do we say? A single woman on the mission field is worth three married men because they have so much capacity to serve the Lord. What about if you're engaged? Back then, of course, they had arranged marriages where you might find yourself betrothed uh, by your parents to someone else from childhood. Paul says, look, if you're not acting honourably, that is, you're not, you know, saying, okay, we should get married, uh, if you're delaying things, um, and you feel you ought to marry, go ahead, you're not sinning, but it's fine if you're not to, and if you don't have to, if there's no pressure, that's preferable. He's saying, if you want to live with an undivided heart in undivided devotion to the Lord, we need to honour God with our bodies, all of us, whatever situation we're in. Self-control, whether married or not, is the answer to sexual immorality. If we don't control ourselves and that we give ourselves to that, that becomes a salvation issue. What must we do? Five really quick points. Number one, do not separate what God has joined together. Don't separate spirit from body. What we do in our bodies impacts our spiritual life, which means, secondly, if we've sinned in this area, realise we've done damage to our souls. And then come clean with God and come to the cross for cleansing and forgiveness and turn your life around with his help. Learning self-control takes time. But can I say, it's not an option for any of us. We all have to do it. You might say, well, I want to have sex and intimacy in relationship. Thirdly, exercise freedom. We can decide to get married. I did. But in thinking through that option, we need to kill our sacred cows. That is, the views that we hold about marriage, which are sacrosanct, but unbiblical. You know, a few. We live in a culture which idolises marriage. Cheapens it, but idolises it still. One of our sacred cows is that every person must get married. You know, our kids grow up watching Disney princess movies where that's always the goal. This chapter says singleness is a viable and good option for Christians to take. Verse 7 speaks of it as a gift. Jesus wasn't married. Jesus died a virgin. And yet he's the most complete person who's ever lived. Singleness gives flexibility and options to serve the Lord, which marriage, married people don't have. Worth thinking about. Another sacred cow is, oh, you've got to wait a long time before you get married? Why? 
Well, maybe it's because you think you've got to be financially viable, you've got to finish your university degree, you've got to bought a house, you've got to be dead. You know, like, um, you can... Why, why all these things, you know? I got married at 21. I was so ignorant, you know? I had 300 bucks in the bank. I didn't even know that the engaged ring was the one with the rock in it. I learned that pretty quickly. That was a big wake-up call. Um, we're okay, you know? Our kids got married young. Sally's not married. Good on you, Sal. You, you rock. Um, you know, singleness is a great option. You know, like, there you go. Another sacred cow might be my future spouse must be successful or, you know, a George Clooney or a Scarlett Johansson or, you know, play the guitar or, you know, like, you know, whatever, whatever it is. Look at verse 39. Paul says, in the case of a Christian woman, or a widow, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but with one exception, only one. He must play the guitar. No, he must belong to the Lord. That's the only exception. So if ever you've wondered where in the Bible does it say that Christians must only marry Christians, here it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. It's black and white. It's very, very clear. He must belong to the Lord. All right? A Christian spouse doesn't need to be have the looks of George Clooney or Scarlett Johansson, they need to belong to the Lord. Number four, don't get too hung up on whether or not you're married because the time really is short. When Christ comes, our earthly marriages will dissolve away, and which means the big wedding plans we need to be make, making are not our own. We need to be getting ready for Christ coming. Finally, value Christ's body. You might be single and think, I'd love to be married, but I can't, and for whatever reason. Um, you know, we are made for intimacy, and we're made for relationship. And being part of Christ's body gives us access to a level of intimacy and fellowship and joy with one another that, frankly, most people don't have. You know, we're not to be sexually active with each other, but there is a companionship and a friendship which is deep and very fulfilling. And we ought to be supporting one another in experiencing that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that your word speaks to us. Uh, undoubtedly, we'll have our questions. We pray, help us to realize what you have said and believe them. And then we pray... Um, help our eyes to be fixed on Christ's return and serving you now with an undivided heart by honouring you with our bodies through exercising self-control. Teach us this. Help us to grow in it. For Jesus' sake. Amen.